the scripture again this morning is uh, Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 7 through 5, verse 1. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine. In the fragrance of your oils than any spice, your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard, uh, are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all choice spices. A garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. This is the very word of the Lord. Well, we're studying together the Song of Songs, and we come now to the fourth chapter, chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 5, verse 1. We didn't read all of that this morning, uh, but that is the text that we want to look at together. So who doesn't enjoy a really good love story? Uh, Everybody does. You all have a love story one way or the other. You've experienced love in some capacity. Um, Mindy and I have a love story. Don't worry, I'm not going to talk about it. She's warned me throughout this series not be too personal. Um, But we have, I think, a really cool love story because we met uh, in elementary school when I was in third grade is when we first met. And by the time I was in junior high, I had found my love Took a while for her to figure that out, but um, it's kind of a cool love story. I'd be happy to share with you sometime. The Bible tells the greatest love story. I wish we Christians were known for believing the Bible to be just that. We sang this morning a lot of songs about the love of God in Christ for us. In love, he moved to rescue me for the glory of his name. Have we settled into the reality of the greatest love story that has ever been told? Do we know the ins and outs of that love story? Do we recognize that when the Bible says that God is love, it's telling us 
of one of the most supreme realities that makes the world even exist, the God of love. The Bible tells a story of a creation and a new creation all coming about because of the great love of God. This morning, as we look primarily at the fourth chapter, and most commentaries will tell you that what we have here at the beginning of chapter 4 on through the first verse of chapter 5, at least the first half of chapter 5, is, is predominantly the man's perspective, the male voice that is speaking. Now, we've said throughout, we need to be careful here. First of all, uh, our Bibles, most of our English versions are trying to help us by putting he and she and others as kind of headings. But most of those, while they're pretty clear from the Hebrew that it's a male or female voice, they're not all super clear. And uh, so the chapter divisions are no help to us either. But one of the things is that whoever's speaking, male or female, it doesn't represent all men and then all women. It's giving us different perspectives on the great theme of love specifically romantic love. And here in particular, we get to the place in the songs where we see, in the song where we see the physical expression of this romantic love. And as the male voice speaks here in the fourth chapter down through the first verse of the fifth chapter, we are encouraged to consider the lover's gaze, the lover's power, And then the lover's paradise. The lover's gaze, the lover's power, and the lover's paradise. In Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 1, the male voice begins to speak and continues his speech through most of the chapter. Like us to begin by looking at the first seven verses, which you might notice begin and end with the male voice's declaration to his lover, you are beautiful. In between these seven verses, he gets very specific about her beauty, describing in simile and metaphor the woman's eyes, hair, teeth, lips, mouth, cheeks, neck, and breasts. Now, we are not surprised to read here of a man praising the physical features of the woman he loves. Again, it is not just the natural response, but the intended consummation of his delight in her. He simply has to say something since he has been so taken by her appearance. Now, as we read through these verses, we find it difficult in our day to understand many, if not most, of the comparisons that are made here. In what ways are her eyes like doves or her hair like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead? I'm guessing that all of us have no idea what that means. Unless you are quite acquainted with doves and unless you've watched a flock of goats skipping down some particular Israelite mountain, it will surely be difficult for us to see what the man sees. But we can at least appreciate as we stand before this great piece of art, this poem, we can at least appreciate some of the artistic features he uses. Perhaps For example, we are meant to see the vivid colors 
in the poetry. The deep black of goats in verse 1. The sparkling white implied by the washing in verse 2. The scarlet red envisioned in verse 3. At any rate, the male speaker has been gazing. He's been looking at his love. He's been staring at her. He's been looking long and hard. He's been gazing. She has caught his attention. And he knows the features of the woman's body well enough that he is painting quite a picture with his words, even if we have a hard time given our place in history following along. And he's doing this, again, not only because he just has to in the same way that we all have to praise what it is we find delight in. He's also doing this because he wants his love to see herself through his eyes. He wants her to also appreciate and participate with him in the beauty that he sees. How exactly might she do that? She is able in some way to acknowledge her own beauty, as we saw back in chapter 1, verse 5. But even there, we notice that she's somewhat self-conscious and embarrassed by her flaws. She wrote, I am very dark but lovely. And she said, do not gaze at me because I am dark. But if only she could see herself through the eyes of her lover who sums up her beauty like this in verse 7. You are all together beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Or maybe in the modern vernacular, girl, you're amazing just the way you are. Now, is that true or false? Is the man simply blinded by love so he can't see the imperfections that the woman, his love, sees in herself? Well, here let me point out an interesting feature of the man's gaze. Twice in these verses, he praises the woman's beauty, her eyes and her cheeks, but he says he sees them behind her veil. Now, whatever else we might guess about the significance of the veil, one thing seems clear. The veil must not be opaque. The man is able to see her features through the veil. In fact, the veil, it seems, does not diminish the man's delight, but serves to heighten it. While in some way concealing the woman's beauty, the veil at the same time increases the man's impression of her beauty. The veil is revealing and at the same time concealing. And this only increases the man's excitement to gaze at her beauty all the more. In other words, the veil, and here we need not concern ourselves with the precise meaning of it. The veil signifies something of the mystery of this woman whom the man sees as a rare beauty. He sees enough of her to know how beautiful she is. But her beauty that he can see only increases his desire to see even more of her beauty. The veil, to put it bluntly, makes one want to look behind the veil. 
Surely there is even more here to be seen, more here in which to take delight. But we are also here on dangerous ground. The gaze at the woman, especially the male gaze, is something that we can either find to be objectifying or perhaps even pornographic. But it doesn't have to be that way, and surely the song invites us to see it a different way. So in her commentary on the Song of Songs, Cheryl Exum explains the difference between the voyeuristic gaze and the erotic gaze. This is how she describes it. She says, voyeurism intrudes upon what is seen. Eroticism participates in what is seen. She says this, the look is objectifying when the one seen is expected to reveal intimate secrets and to become fully accessible to a viewer who remains invisible and inaccessible. But this is not what happens in the song where the erotic look preserves the mystery, the otherness of the other through figuration. Not only is looking reciprocal, but when the man looks at the woman, he participates in what is seen. He always puts himself in the picture. Neither lover constructs the other without being affected themselves, without becoming part of the story or entering the picture. And as for us, the audience for the song, the use of metaphor is the poet's way, she, uh, XM writes, of managing the reader's gaze by keeping the lover's bodies clothed in metaphor. So the song does not cross any boundaries into the profane, but it does, in fact, invite us to consider just where those boundaries are. It does not challenge the biblical sexual ethic that's made plain in the rest of Scripture, and it's a misuse of the song to suggest that it does. But what it does do is invite us to explore the experience of eroticism as something meant to tell us about the nature of God who is love. So as uncomfortable as the gaze could be, as dangerous as the gaze of objectification truly is, where we find true love we must also encounter the disarming gaze of a lover. Now, we take a look at the next part of the man's poem, his next picture that he's painting for us as we look at verses 8 through 11. And these verses, I think, should be taken together because they are framed by references to Lebanon, Lebanon is mentioned again and later in verse 15, but when we get to that section, we'll see it's framed by yet another reference. So taking verses 8 to 11 together, we now find that we are being turned from the lover's gaze to the lover's power. The lover's power. So it begins and ends with Lebanon. Lying just to the north of the land of Israel is the land of Lebanon. And what matters most for the reading of the song is the understanding that in the song, Lebanon represents a far-off, almost magical place. 
a place that in the Psalms perspective was legendarily associated with Solomon. We got a pastor of this church who comes from a far off, almost magical place. So it takes on, Lebanon in the song, takes on a a quasi-mythical status, inviting our imagination and heightening our senses. Globalization in our day makes such use of geography somewhat obscure. We've lost it all because you can just hop on Google and see Lebanon. You can travel to Lebanon. But still you probably get some sense of it in the experience of actually going to a place that you've always longed to visit. Like young girl going to Disney World and seeing Magic Kingdom for the first time. Or for me, just conjuring up my imagery from when I was a child, when I was a young boy, walking into the Astrodome to watch a baseball game. Magical. But Lebanon is not the place the man wishes to visit with his lover. It's not the honeymoon place. No, no. Lebanon here is more like the woman's homeland. It's the place that he's asking her to leave in order to come to him. In other words, He is describing his love as someone who herself comes from a magical, far-off place, increasing, in his eyes, her own mysterious legend. Similarly, you can see as he goes on, he tells her to depart from the peak of Amana, Sanir, and Hermon. But let's not get too granular in our analysis here. This says Exum in her commentary, is the geography of the imagination and not some travel itinerary. The man is still describing his lover, but he's not describing her features as much as her power. Her power especially over him. She is a breathtaking beauty, to be sure, but she is also a powerful presence, a real force to be reckoned with. She is mesmerizing. She's a wonder woman. (laughs) Now, this comes through, especially at the end of verse 8. The woman hails from the magical land of Lebanon, but he goes on to describe her as coming from the dens of lions. And then he says, and from the mountains, or possibly the word here is the layers of leopards. This is once more how the man perceives her, how he's describing her. What would you feel like if you were to encounter a lion's den or a lair of leopards? And you think, this is a place that you just can't, you know, go moseying around. This is a dangerous place. But it's also, of course, an awesome place. We we want to approach it, but we would prefer to do it through the veil of a camera like I did whenever that was last fall when I watched the grizzly bears feasting on salmon up in Alaska during Fat Bear Week. It's an awesome sight, but boy, I'm glad I'm watching it through a camera, right, and not just standing there among them. So we're looking here 
through the way this male voice is portraying, we're looking at a creature who can destroy you in a heartbeat. This is how the man sees his lover. She is beautiful, but she's not like some harmless sight in the distance. This is a beauty that is powerful and dangerous. Here is a beauty that can delight you to be sure, but this is a beauty that can also destroy you. And yet, and yet, to quote Exum again, the danger that he senses here is exciting. The thrill of attraction to another person so intense that one both passionately wants to lose oneself and is also in danger of doing so. How shall we describe this kind of feeling? The man does his best in verse 9. Take a look at it when he says this. This is the ESV translation. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. What he describes here uh, is, is, an, is a feeling, is an encounter, is an experience. Um, he, he almost makes up a word. It's the, the verb here, captivated, is the Hebrew word for heart, intensified and made into a verb. You have heartened me. In fact, the Greek translation of the Old Testament translates it here, you have encouraged me. But it's doubtful that he's not saying, you have warmed my heart. You've encouraged me. She comes from a layer of leopards. She comes from the dens of lions. She comes from the magic kingdom. No, no. What he's saying here is that this woman has grabbed hold of his heart. The NIV, I think, reads, you have stolen my heart. In the contemporary society of that day, you have to understand that this is a really big deal. We have here a power that can take down the male figure with just a glance of the eye or a sparkle of a necklace. For, for a man, especially in those days, to write about an experience where he has been conquered is to admit utter and total defeat, to recognize that he's in the presence of a greater power. And yet, at the same time, he's also welcoming it. I quote again from Exum. She helped me a lot in this sermon. If someone steals your money, she says, you may feel wronged. But to say that your heart has been stolen is a far cry from a complaint. Having your heart stolen does not deprive you of anything. On the contrary, it enriches you with a feeling of euphoria. No one can steal your heart if you are not willing. The man is more than willing. He is inflamed with desire, and his feelings overwhelm him. It takes only a glance from his beloved, only a fleeting glimpse of the sparkle of a pendant on her necklace to excite him. So when you get to verse 10, the man responds to the love of the woman in words similar to how she responded to his love in chapter 1, verse 2. Her love is beautiful, better than wine. What does it mean for the love of another to be beautiful? The comparison to wine 
indicates that we're not here supposed to concentrate so much on her appearance, but on the effect that she has. Later in verse 10, he speaks of her fragrance. And in verse 11, he speaks of things that one tastes like honey and milk. These types of metaphors paint a picture, but it is a picture that speaks to action. Not to love in the abstract, but to love making. Not just an appearance. In other words, to speak of love here as beautiful is not to stand at some distance and stare. It's to go all in, to participate. And having participated, having tasted the honey, you can't know honey unless you taste it, right? You can't understand what, what some luscious food is like until you take it in. And having taken it in, having participated... To then describe the effect that this lovemaking has on you, that's what he means when he says it's beautiful. Not merely because of the appearance, but also because of the effect. It's a powerful, dominating effect that says, I want more. It's a power that takes control over you. Now, by the time we get to verse 12, if we're listening carefully, we get the sense that we may have reached something of the summit of the Song of Songs. We have reached the climax, the moment of consummation, and we have reached, quite literally, I want to show us, the lover's paradise. So the man refers here to the woman as a garden, a spring, and a fountain. These images are probably meant to go together in order to paint a picture for us of a, of a well-watered, luscious garden. He lingers for the next three verses over the description of this garden. The only problem that we can see here from the outset is that the garden is locked and sealed. But in verse 16, the woman speaks an invitation. She invites her beloved into the garden to eat its fruit. One could hardly miss the innuendo of these verses. But what we do seem to miss, especially in the world that we inhabit today, is the distinction between erotic love and its mere physical reality, sex. There's a distinction here that the song has been bringing us into, and in our confused world, we have all but lost the distinction. So let me explain this. You may have noticed that the man has used several, several terms of endearment throughout this chapter. In addition to calling the woman his love, Riyati, he calls her his bride and his sister. Now, it's a well-established fact that sister was a common term of endearment for intimate couples in the ancient Near East. It should not be taken to refer to some sort of incestuous relationship. That is not on the table here at all. But... 
The other word, the word bride here, there's no reason not to take this word uh, at its face value and understand that the erotic imagery that's being presented here to us is situated quite clearly within the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. This is, of course, the basic Christian sexual ethic. As regressive as society today may insist it be, it is, the insistence throughout the Scripture and supported in the Song of Songs that sex is to be reserved for heterosexual married couples is all for the maximization of pleasure and mutual delight. It is, to just say it quite clearly, it is meant to point us back to paradise. In his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis made an important observation here when he pointed out this distinction between sexuality and erotic love. We must not confuse the two. They are not the same, as we well know. Sex can take place within or without it. You don't have to be in love to have sex. That's quite obvious. But there's a huge point to be underscored here. Lewis writes, sexual desire without eros wants it, the thing in itself. But eros wants the beloved. He adds this, quote, the thing that sexual desire wants is sensory pleasure. That is, an event occurring within one's own body. We use a most unfortunate idiom when we say of a lustful man prowling the streets that he wants a woman. Listen to this. Strictly speaking, a woman is just what he does not want. He wants a pleasure for which a woman happens to be the necessary piece of apparatus. How much he cares about the woman as such may be gauged by his attitude to her five minutes after fruition. And then he says, one does not keep the carton after one has smoked the cigarettes. <laughs> now, if only we could see that even here in the song, especially here in the song, the pleasure that is being commended to us is one that simply has to be reserved for marriage as God has defined it. It just has to. We cannot yield on this. And one of the reasons for this is because what makes sex a paradise is the real possession of the other. The certainty that, as the song has already commended, I am his and he is mine. This is the love that Lewis says, makes a man really want not a woman, but one particular woman. In some mysterious but quite indisputable fashion, the lover desires the beloved herself, not the pleasure she can give. Now, of course, no one would deny that there aren't real pleasures here. Pleasures that God delights to give us, but to fully taste of the pleasures the song is inviting us to see. We need love. We need eros. We need the other fully, entirely. 
Here's Lewis one more time. Without eros, sexual desire, like every other desire, is a fact about ourselves. Within eros, it is rather about the beloved. It becomes almost a mode of perception, entirely a mode of expression. It feels objective, something outside us, in the real world. That is why eros, through the king, though the king of pleasures, always at its height has the air of regarding pleasure as a byproduct. Because, listen to this, one of the first things eros does is to obliterate the distinction between giving and receiving. End quote. In other words, within a marriage relationship, the height of sexual pleasure is found when it is difficult to determine who is giving and who is receiving. At that moment, there is a hint of paradise. And I'm saying that because in verse 13, the word that the ESV translates orchard is a rare Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word pardes. Yes, it is the word from which we get the English word paradise. It refers, I'm not making this up like it's in the Bible. It refers to a pleasure garden and all the plants with their fragrances that are found here that he describes are merely intended for pleasure. There's no, there's no staples for the diet here. These are just superfluous pleasure delights. But the pleasure the pleasure is found, and here's the key point, it's found only in sharing of that pleasure with another in intimate union. Paradise is only found with someone. Remember what Jesus said to the thief dying on the cross? He did not just say, Today you will be in paradise. He said, Today you will be with me in paradise. Which is exactly the reason why marriage can be a picture for all of us to see what God intends to give us all in our union with Christ. Not only is there a blurring here between giving and receiving? Jesus said in his great priestly, high priestly prayer, John 17, I and them and they and me, that we might be perfectly one. So not only is there a blurring here between giving and receiving, there is also a blurring between the person and the pleasure. Look down here at verse 16. A man has described the woman as a garden, but her interjection in his speech in the second half of verse 16 is important because it reestablishes in the song this dialogue format essential to the song's distinctive version of love in which eroticism has to be shared. So, is the woman the source of the man's pleasures? No doubt. He can't have the pleasures that he truly craves without her. But more fundamentally, listen to this, brothers and sisters, more fundamentally, she is the man's pleasure. 
not merely the source. She is in herself the great delight. And so it is with God. The Bible is telling us a love story in which God intends to share with us, his people, 10,000 joys and even more. But God is not only the source of those joys. He absolutely is. There's no getting to those delights apart from him, without him. But God is the joy. God is the goal. He is the target. And in the mystical union that the Bible insists we have in Christ, God has so united us to himself that we can even now begin to taste of the joys of eternity. So at the end of our passage, we find the chorus celebrating the love of this eternal union. You say, well, what is this? This is all mystical union love. What, what are we talking about here? How do, I, how do I get a taste of it? How am I meant to enjoy it? How am I meant to participate in it? Well, take a look at what happens here. At the end of the passage, the chorus celebrates the love of this eternal union with these words. Eat, friends. Drink. And be drunk with love. Did you know that the Bible commands us to be drunk? <laughs> there it is. It is a command for you to be drunk. I hope that's in context, whoever cites that one day. But listen, listen. To be drunk with something that is far more sensuous, far more intoxicating than wine. The Proverbs urge married men to be intoxicated always in the love of their spouse, Proverbs 5.19. And the whole storyline of the Bible is the summons to come and be intoxicated with the love of God in Jesus Christ. Yeah, okay, Ben, but how? What, what do I do? What, what do you mean? The New Testament says it this way. And I, I have to think, again, the Song of Songs does not explicitly, is not explicitly referenced anywhere in the New Testament, but it seems to have its, its impact all over the place. And I am more and more convinced that Paul had the Song of Songs in mind when he wrote Ephesians chapter 5. We've already looked at the end of chapter 5, marriage. It symbolizes, it signifies, it points a picture to the union of Christ and his church, but earlier in the chapter 5, Paul writes this. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled, intoxicated, with the Spirit. That's what you do. Be drunk with love himself, the Holy Spirit. The result or even the contribution or the way of doing this, it's ambiguous a bit in the Greek, is 
the, the joy of a merry heart, singing songs, songs of gratitude, songs of thanksgiving. It's one of the reasons that you gather on the Lord's Day and you, you sing. You don't come after the singing, do you? You want to be filled with love? You want to be drunk? Then you come and you begin to, to sing songs with gratitude, with thanksgiving in your heart to a God who is love. The time is coming when you will sense a distance from God and you will be tempted to doubt his love. So prepare your heart. Singing songs of thanksgiving, gratitude to God. And it goes on to say, and then spreading this love to one another in all of our relationships as the rest of Ephesians 5 and into chapter 6 will go on to explain. This is truly the greatest love story ever told. And may we who find ourselves taken up into it have the courage to tell it like it is. Let us pray. Father in heaven, our Lord Jesus himself said that the way the world will know we are his disciples will be we will be marked by a love that we have for and with one another. There's a little glimmer, there's a little taste, there's a little signpost pointing to paradise when we are so taken up in the reality of a God who is love, a God who is all love, who's poured out his love upon us through Jesus Christ. When we are so taken up into that, when we are drunk with the love of God in Christ for us, that we now can share good news with a world that knows only the debauchery of a drunkenness that cannot last and cannot satisfy. It takes us further and further in the darkness of sin and death and hell. But God, because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Restores us in his image and then sends us out to invite others into the wonderful, greatest love story that's ever been told. So the first order of business that we have to keep working at, oh Lord, is that you would intoxicate us with your love. Help us, Father, those who are here today doubting the infinite, wonderful, intoxicating love of God. May they see it anew. May they see it fresh again. In the words of our Lord Jesus, who laid down his life for us, his body broken, his blood shed, all for love, all for the joy set before him. He invites us, he welcomes us in paradise restored, a new creation begun. Would you grant us this intoxication with your love, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
we come to the table now, brothers and sisters.